talents and people from the existing business become mentors um, for the startups and thus are able to help with expertise, domain expertise, but at the same time, they get positively influenced from a different way of working. Welcome back to another episode of the Innovation Roundtable Insights podcast. That's David Graham from Lego. At our workshop hosted by Allianz in Berlin, David and our colleague Leonard discussed the size of Lego's venture fund and the stage at which it usually makes investments in startups. David explains how large and valuable brands can experiment with MVPs without risking their reputation. We hope you enjoy this episode. David, thank you very much for your presentation and uh, thank you for joining me in, my, in this little pop-up studio here. Um, maybe we can start the interview by you just briefly explaining who you are, what company you work at and uh, what role you have currently. Sure. Yeah, um, uh, my name is David Graham. I've um, been with Lego for the last eight years, but basically I've, I've worked in major corporations for the last uh, soon 20 years uh, as an entrepreneur. Um, and that means someone who's been inside the big company, but challenging the status quo, uh, seeing the future and what's happening and trying to sort of uh, make people understand that we need to change and we need to innovate um, to be able to stay relevant. And so at Lego, I've been part of leading the internal innovation labs uh, in the company. And for the last two years, I've been part of building their new uh, strategic corporate venture arm called Lego Ventures. And I'm a venture partner in that. Let me ask you about Lego Ventures. Where is that kind of placed from an organizational perspective, but also geographically and physically? Where, where's the team working? So geographically, it's in Denmark, um, near the headquarters or at the headquarters of Lego in Billund. But one of the things that we, that we learned and really studied before we did this was, you know, what are the experiences from other corporate venture arms throughout the years? And one of the key things we saw in terms of how to organize this and how to structure it is that if the strategic venture arm has the mandate to explore new business outside the existing business, then it's really challenging if it's placed on the balance sheet of the existing business. Because that existing business will more look into how to optimize short-term performance and outcomes than investing in long-term uh, exploration. So you'll get squeezed. So what we did was to have, it should not be on the balance sheet of any of the existing businesses. It should be above that. Ideally in an umbrella organization, a little like what Alphabet is for Google. And so we actually created that and we call it Lego Brand Group. And it's anchored in the holding company that owns all the Lego companies. Um, and it functions like an umbrella organization. And part of that has then Lego Ventures that strategically can invest in new business areas um, that potentially even over time could cannibalize on the existing business if needed. Um, and that's one of the key advantages. You are not being sort of um, squeezed by short-term challenges or burning platforms. You can continuously have that long-term perspective. If you're off the books and you're part of sort of a, a bigger fund in a holding what are some of the criteria when you look at startups, interesting startups that, that, uh, that you're interested in? And, and what are some of the, the terms and especially also what stages are you looking at? Yeah, so we are just 18 months into uh, to doing and building this. So at the moment, we are sort of stage and size agnostic. That means we look at any, any size uh, company, any stage, but we are very disciplined and focused around 
the areas that we have an interest in. So we spend a lot of time in defining what we call opportunity spaces. Uh, we actually spend more than six months um, on even doing anthropological studies around changes that are happening um, in the world, in play, in family life, uh, in technologies, in business models, and saying all that combined, what are then the key areas that would be most relevant for Lego as a company to move into? And, and so these are defined, and we're quite disciplined in saying we need to be within those spaces. But within those spaces, we're quite free in terms of the ticket size, in terms of the maturity. It might well be that over time, we figure out that we are, you know, we get more, you know, strategic value out of investing in this size of company, or we can better support this type of company, this stage, um, and we may narrow the scope over time. So also it's an evergreen fund um, that at the moment has no cap. Um, and because we are part of a bigger fund, um, which is the, the, the holding company. So in terms of the size of the fund, there's no real number or? At the moment, no. Yeah. Um, and that's both good and bad. Um, it's good because at the moment it's hard to say, you know, it's because we're strategic, we don't have a specific amount of cash we need to deploy and get a return on. That's not how it works. We're strategic and that means we need to create long-term new strategic opportunities for the company, namely new business areas, uh, new capabilities, um, or new technologies that we can leverage across the different companies and entities. Um, and for that reason, um, it doesn't make sense that, that it's a specific amount that needs to be deployed, but it might be that we say, you know, with this size of team, we have this capacity to then deploy and manage you know, a portfolio, and that equals that we will deploy this amount of cash every year. So it more becomes a, like, how much do we want to manage? How quickly do we want to grow? What are some of the interfaces between uh, some of the startups uh, you are investing in, maybe already today, but also planned in the future, if you're, if you're not uh, that far into the journey, uh, between the startups and the corporate core Lego mm, mothership? Mm. This is one of the absolutely key areas of, I, I believe, of strategic corporate venturing. That is, how do you leverage the assets, the talent, the capabilities that you have in the existing entities and companies to give unfair advantage to these new companies coming in? Um, and the trick is often, how do you tap into that uh, knowledge and expertise and, and brand power without disturbing the existing business, which is obviously very busy, and also without crushing this new little startup, which don't need you know, uh, the, you know, procurements, uh, uh, processes and, and templates, um, et cetera. They need to be able to work in their lean startup agile way. Um, so we're working on a number of programs that will help sort of uh, rub shoulders between the startups and the existing business, but in a way where it doesn't harm any of them and it becomes a win-win situation. And concretely, one of the things we're doing is, is running a mentorship program where talents and people from the existing business become mentors um, for the startups and thus are able to help um, uh, with expertise, domain expertise and uh, knowledge. But at the same time, they get positively influenced from a different way of working, from different technologies, from a different field of business. 
um, that they can bring back and sort of then be part of leading the culture change in the existing business towards more agility or towards adopting to the changing world. Now, let me ask you more about, could be a more kind of incubation, internal um, startups and your experience in this in the, in the last uh, many years, um, but also very relevant in the, in the startup space, of course, that you are overseeing, is how do you uncover the, the needs and user needs that are more latent, more unspoken? Uh, what are some of the methods you find very useful in trying to figure out what the needs really are. I mean, you talked about the, the zoo and the savanna. Exactly. Um, but, but how <laughs> are you Understanding how the lion hunts, you need to go to the zoo, not to the savanna. And I think, or you need to go to the savanna, not the zoo. Um, and one of the key things here is, is to not do it only, um, not research and look only when there's a problem, but have it as an ongoing core capability that you're constantly having a number of sensors out that can sense when changes are happening. That means you are rigorously interested in understanding how your current products and portfolio are being perceived, uh, are being leveraged. Um, any abnormality, difference, change, you want to understand that. You want to change what happened here. Even though it's still a small voice, it's a small subtle signal. You want to understand what is that sound? And, and if that grows bigger, what could that you know, what implications could that have? And it's having that curiosity, man, that interest, deep interest, not just in one small department, but across the whole organization and constantly understanding, you know, the front end, you know, the frontline people in the consumer service should be some of the most important people that you want to talk to. And like, what are the feedback you're hearing? What is, you know, any noise um, in the system that, that doesn't sound right? Uh, that we should pay attention to. You've had a good example. Uh, one of your examples in your presentation was, was kind of using a different brand or not using the Lego brand. Uh, what other options or how do you use that option as well when you start and test and experiment with new ideas in order to protect the brand? I mean, minimum viable product, if you say that to someone working uh, with a brand and the protection of the brand in the company, they, yeah. get, they get really nervous. <laughs> they get really nervous. How, how do you do it uh, when mm. developing new products? Yeah, so there's a couple of sort of foundational things that should always be in place. Like for, for Lego, it's super important, you know, never to harm any child, always to keep the quality in a level where, you know, no harm can happen. Um, and that's, that's a prerequisite. That means you need to design your experiments and your pilots in a way where that is guaranteed. And it, it might even mean that some things you cannot do yet um, or you have to do in other ways to make sure that you live by that rule. But other than that, there's um, a lot of de-risking in, in, um, in trying to make things as small as possible. Um, you should only add scale to the tests and pilots if, if only by scaling it, you learn specific things. So what is the minimum effort you can do, the minimum um, trial and pilot you can run to de-risk, uh, to make sure that you're not exposing too many users to this new thing, uh, too many customers, too much of the market uh, to something new. Um, and other than that, it's, it's about you know, um, communicating and aligning as well with your users. So one of the pilots we ran previously, 
had some flaws that we had overlooked. Um, and the product was selling, you know, and it was selling up towards Christmas. And the only thing we could do was to empower our consumer service with all the mandate they needed to make sure that all the customers that had a bad experience during that Christmas with a product, a gift for their child, that they were overcompensated to a level where they felt even, you know, maybe a stronger uh, connection with the brand than before. And that's, that's an investment you, you should be prepared to do to make sure that you hold your hand under these experiments and don't burn any, um, any customers. Especially when running those experiments that are small scale and, and, and small markets and, and even before if it's markets, really small groups in the, in the really beginning of, of, of the development. How do you make sure that those, how do you select those, those first users or first smaller markets and how do you ensure that this is representative to a, a bigger um, opportunity behind it? So part of it goes back to having a strong, you know, existing understanding of the customers that you have. And, and Lego is a company that's super good at constantly collecting data and knowledge about the different sub-segments of users, both the actual users, the buyers, and the retail customers, to really constantly understand um, what is the best way that this new product might go out. Um, so you can, you can, from that, select um, how you want to build this up. Who are the core users for this type of experience? The first movers we need on board. What's the next level and the next level? And besides that, we also have the AFOL, the adult fan community, which typically also do early testing and trials um, of things. And it's sort of a sounding board towards, is this, is this a true legal experience? And they can also stress test uh, some of these things and, and becomes a close, a close partner for us in that. Let me start about that uh, talk about or ask about that um, that period of time in the first scaling when many of the kind of before building a plant basically how do you how can you produce smaller quantities uh, to test even further but it's not a full production huge investment yet so kind of the product market fit is there uh, now you want to provide it to more to more customers and users, and, but it's still not the capability of the core uh, business there yet. So that in between, have you ever had any experiences of how to find uh, the production facilities for that? Um, well, we've, had the, we've been fortunate in terms of the internal apps that most of what they did was still anchored around the brick system. And that means, and the way that the brick system works is that with the same produced elements, you can produce a lot of different products. Um, and there's a lot of scaling power in that, um, which is part of the, the success of Lego, is the ability to manage that supply chain. Um, and, um, and so often we've been able to use existing elements, um, but obviously there's been times where we needed a different type of packaging or something, a different element, um, where we had to go outside. And I think being able to go out to partners and, and bridge the capability gaps, you can say, is absolutely key for the innovation process as well. And it's a journey we are still on in opening even more up towards leveraging partners, in, uh, in the, especially in the short term, but also sometimes even for the long run, in saying we don't need 
to do this ourselves. Um, this is something we permanently can have, but still as part of our ecosystem, but not maybe as a, as a core capability that we do ourselves. Let me ask you more generally. Um, when you've, you've been working yourself, working in teams a, a lot, you've seen a, a lot of teams, uh, innovation teams, what would you say are the, what are the qualities of a good team? What were the qualities of a good team that you know, really delivered uh, good results? So actually, it's, um, it's very much leaning on the five points that I went through. Um, so, you know, it's the ability to uh, handle resistance and, you know, be resilient, um, be brave, be persistent, and not taking no for an answer. But on top of that, you know, um, being humble and diplomatic, you know, understanding why the system is reacting the way that it is, um, why these rules have been set the way that they are. Um, so have some respect for the past, basically. And, but at the same time, changing it. Um, being very good at making people want to come on board. And that's just about being a storyteller, basically. Being able to tell stories um, about what it is you're trying to do. And typically through stories is also a good channel to, to show passion, you know, that you are passionate for this, but in a constructive way. Um, and then uh, the ability to, um, to include people uh, in the success that, that you're doing. Um, and so it's quite sort of an inclusive um, culture. And the same goes for if you want to collaborate with external partners, if you want to collaborate with your customers or your, your community, it's about being able to be inclusive uh, and open up, being transparent uh, about what you're doing uh, and not basically being an arrogant idiot uh, <laughs> is one of the basic, basic things and it's not, it's not guaranteed that, that a good entrepreneur have all these traits to begin with. And many entrepreneurs are driven by being very sort of strong-headed to the degree of maybe stubborn. Mm. Um, so I think there's, a, there's an element of training and molding as well in the teams uh, and, and ongoingly on the job learn how to navigate, how to drive radical innovation while at the same time navigate a big corporate system and be diplomatic enough to understand the politics and, and processes um, of that and have the patience also, uh, which is often one of the biggest challenges. Let me drop another keyword into the discussion, which is leadership and especially leadership. Um, what is important in terms of leadership when we talk about those more explorative projects uh, where there's a lot of uncertainty involved, nobody knows the end result. It's, what is important uh, in terms of leadership to support those teams working in those areas? Yeah, the, the leadership part is, is super important because it both supports the fact that, you know, as you are breaking rules, for instance, there is uh, air cover in terms of, uh, of being able to um, work with the stakeholders up in the system and, and mitigate um, the, the potential reactions that there could be in the system. So as a leader, you need to be good at constantly foresee that, you know, we're going to do something now that's borderlining on what some people might feel is right um, in the company. And how can we be proactive in, in making sure that we sort of uh, mitigate and disarm the challenges around us? At the same time, <clears throat> they need to be uh, um, uh, supportive to the teams in terms of they're providing tools 
and you know a runway but also letting go enough um, and giving autonomy and autonomy also means decision power down to the team so that they're actually able to make their own decisions because at the end of the day nobody knows more about this project and about you know what's right and wrong than the team itself they've been spending months on it and what unfortunately often happens is that someone far removed from the project ends up making a decision and unless it's it's a very sort of strong strategically angered decision saying you know we as a company do not want to do that that's that should come higher up but unless it's that it should be the team making their own decisions based on the the validation that they're doing of their hypotheses and direct input from users in that process that teaches them themselves ooh this is not right this is not wrong and that's how a startup works right a lean startup at least it's good at constantly challenging your own assumptions and then making those decisions uh, even the hard ones let me ask you last but maybe tricky question uh, what is one of your most important lessons you've learned over the years um, that you have not shared in your presentation? Okay. I got one. Um, so, um, uh, you know, part of my talk is saying, you know, um, uh, you need to break rules, but you need to understand the rules you're breaking and why they're there. And I had a concrete example once of, you know, so the way that the main business in Vego is running is a very rigorous state skate model where there's a hundred checklists you constantly need to go through at every step to make sure that you've done all the things you need to do and that quality is in order. It makes the process quite slow and lengthy and have a lot of stakeholders involved throughout it. And when you're doing this project, it's quite annoying and you want to fast forward that. And so in the early part of my career, I was in a project where we just skipped the checklist and say, we got this, we know what we're doing and we made quite a both stupid but also uh, expensive mistake uh, and it was just a bit of piece of copy on the packaging but the packaging went out you know in in 10,000 different distribution uh, sales points um, and it was misleading the users the buyers of the product so we had to you know call it back we had to change it manually put new labels on all the boxes and send it out again and after that I realized there's a reason why we have these checklists. <laughs> Let's use them next time. <laughs> that was a good learning. Yeah. David, thank you very much yeah. uh, for your presentation once again, and thank you for that interesting and uh, pleasant You're conversation. You're My pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find our show in most podcast apps. Subscribe for free to get the latest episodes. The video and the transcript of this podcast and all of our other exclusive interviews can be accessed via innovationroundtable.org. The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, innovationroundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with thousands of other corporate innovators, share experiences, request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. Our network is exclusively for innovation, HR, and marketing practitioners in large firms. So visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more Request your 15-day free trial account.